Hi, and welcome to our first episode of CIO Leadership Live, a series of in-depth conversations with IT leaders about business strategy, digital transformation, and innovation. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, Executive Director of CIO Programs for IDG's CIO Events Division and our CIO Executive Council. With me today is Bernie Gracie, who is the Chief Digital Officer of Agero, which is a leading provider of roadside assistance, accident management, and related services. Please feel free while you're watching our show today to submit your questions for Bernie via Twitter. We'll be watching for them on our end. Okay. Hello and welcome, Bernie. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thanks so much for being here. I want to tell our audience just a little bit about your uh, background. You joined Agero in February of 2017, and you brought with you 30-plus years of experience in strategy, technology, and product development, including seven patents to your name. You have a long track record of disruptive innovation and work digitizing legacy businesses. You've, you also serve as a guest lecturer for the University of Rochester's Simon Business School, and the things you talk about are new product strategy and innovation, which is a lot of what we're going to touch on today. Great. And then finally, at Agero, you're responsible for all the aspects of technology development, architecture, infrastructure, all of this in that ecosystem that we talk about so much here at CIO that is powered by digital, mobile, cloud, Internet of Things, all of the above. Now, you have a relatively unusual background for a chief digital officer or even a CIO, and you actually wear both hats at a, at a Jero. So how does that work? First off, I just want to say thank you for having me, and I'm so honored to be your inaugural CIO or CDO Excellent. for this session, and I hope your audience gets a lot of benefit out of the discussion. And I can't wait to see what their questions are. I am confident they will. Yeah. So I, I, th I think a CDO title is actually a very important. In certain cases, a CDO role is a transitional role. CDOs mm -hmm. typically will be viewed as I'm leading a transformation of an analog business to a digital business. That's one, that's one point of view. Mm -hmm. I like the point of view that a CDO, by definition, is an outside-in leader versus an inside-out leader. That a CDO is talking about the value that we're, we're delivering in technology through the lens of our stakeholders. What I talk about all the time, what we do this with, uh, with my leadership team and colleagues, mm -hmm. is we obsess about the experiences of tow truck drivers of our clients, of our clients' customers who are stuck on the side of the road, mm -hmm. our internal call center agents. So what we do is we obsess about the stakeholder and how can we make their experiences better and then how do we align our systems and our processes and our infrastructure to be able to make that an amazing experience so that we can do that on behalf of our clients. Yes. Do you run into any other executives like yourself who are doing, they may have the CIO title, but they're also doing chief digital officer type roles? Yes. Do, do you think this is becoming more common? Absolutely. Um, there's mm -hmm. a friend of mine who's in a, in a, I'll call it a traditional uh, equipment company to make products, mm -hmm. and now they're recognizing that the information assets that they're throwing off creates these all new of these adjacencies and growth opportunities. So yes, the CIO then becomes the CDO to say, how do I now monetize and create access to these new capabilities? Yes. So yes, it's an exciting time. Well, and you have a lot of affinity for disruptive innovation. It turns up uh, in many references in your bio. It's what you lecture at the University of Rochester at the business school there. How does that mesh, disruptive innovation, how does it mesh with Agero and the business mission that uh, you came into the company to work on? Well, let's talk about it again through the lens of our clients. Okay. Our clients are undergoing disruptive innovation. Our clients are primarily in the automotive and property casualty insurance industry. Mm -hmm. Those are two industries that are undergoing radical disruption. The whole concept of ownership of cars, of driverless cars. Um, it is uh, where uh, automotive manufacturers are now viewing themselves more like software companies, right? Or fleet yes. management companies versus manufacturers. And the whole property casualty insurance industry is undergoing uh, rapid disruption. Mm -hmm. So they are going through their own digital evolution to be able to serve their clients and be able to defend themselves against you know, digital startup natives, as well as how can I make it more streamlined? How do I become more efficient? How do I be able to retain clients? Mm -hmm. So part of our, own, our digital transformation has to be in the context of serving them better as they go into their digital transformation. So those two wow. things have to be linked. So yes, there are certain, there's a whole strategic rationale for us to do it by ourselves. 
but it's really important in the context of how our clients are evolving. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's an interesting and kind of expansive, more expansive way to look at um, digitizing a business and looking at the in the impact of digital innovation that it's not just about it's not even just about your customers and clients it actually extends down your supply chain that's correct okay and and, and so as we are part of the supply chain of our clients we're mm-hmm. part of their experience the same thing is with regards to our partner ecosystem to be able to deliver that value and so when you look at that across that uh, that supply chain and as we partner more, as we as we become uh, an ecosystem around us, we have responsibility. I have responsibility around the reliability, the security, and the infrastructure of that overall supply chain in the context of providing that service to our clients yeah. and their customers. One of the things you said to me about your dual role, doing a lot of the CIO job as well as the CDO, is that some days you're two-thirds CIO and one-third CDO, other days it's reversed. Do you absolutely know from minute to minute which one you're being? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. You know, um, in, in the CIO role will typically be in the aspect of you know, a critical emergency ah. and things where you're really looking at the, the, the safety and reliability of our service. Okay. Um, that becomes important. And then the CDO is really looking, what can we do around automation? What can we do around experience? What can we do to enhance the value that we're delivering mm-hmm. for everyone in the ecosystem? Those are the things that you blend together. So it's almost like having there's one switch that's etern- internally focused and the other one externally. Exactly. And that tends to kind of delineate it. But you have to keep them both in balance. Yes. Yeah. Well, and one of the uh, points you made to me was that a Jer- was actually a disruptive innovator back into the 1970s yes. when it was called cross-country automotive. That's right. Correct? Exactly. And yeah, um, the, the founder of the company is still very active. And mm-hmm. it's really about this disruptive innovation um, around what I'll call the desperate pragmatist. Um, he had come hmm. up with this idea around this, uh, of, uh, uh, named Sid Walk, around this opportunity to make, actually provide roadside assistance. And then there was an automotive dealer in the 1970s that wanted to be able to sell a certain Japanese vehicle. In the 1970s, there was not a, a, a well good understanding of quality of that brand. Mm-hmm. And so part of whole product innovation is um, sometimes from a marketing context is how can you reduce the gap in assurance about what you're going to buy mm-hmm. and who the experience you'll have once you buy it. And in this case, the assurance was, yes, you're, you may be taking a leap on this type of automobile, but the assurance is when you take it off the lot, there's going to be someone there to back you up. Right. And that was us. And so part of a disruptive innovation sometimes is a partners and allies strategy where you have two parties who have two ideas and you bring them together. Interesting. And you uh-huh. build a business. And this, this idea that Sid had has exploded into a business that we are have this very preeminent share within automotive and property casualty insurance. But it started mm-hmm. with a dealer and Sid having an idea. Hmm. And, uh, and then here we are today. Well, and, and all the technology advances aside, probably the biggest difference is how connected with the community of all of your users you've ended up being through these digital technologies. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, too, is that while there are users and we take, uh, let's say, a very high, I, I think they're actually really important, mm-hmm. maybe different to some of your, or your other uh, listeners here. When our uh, customers call, really they're our clients' customers, mm-hmm. right? We're serving them. They're not calling to say hi. They're not calling to buy something. They're called because they're stressed out. Yeah. <laughs> their car just broke down. Their car isn't starting. They've got a flat. They, they're on vacation. They're going to a wedding. It's a very stressful event. And we get ten, we have, you know, more than 10 million events a year. Mm-hmm. that people are contacting us. And so people are depending upon us. And so when we look at our, our services, one of the things that's pretty awesome about this job and everyone who walks into a Jero, that they know that the work that they do is important because it's not only just that person who's on the side of the road requiring assistance and it's our client that we're providing that service support mm-hmm. for, but that could be our mom, our dad, our son, our daughter, our best friend. And so there's like an awesome responsibility Mm. that comes with this job. And everyone who walks into a Jero every day has that sense of responsibility and sense of pride that what they do is really, really important. So I wanted to kind of put that out on yeah. that first. Yeah. And so then, so then when we talk about then those people calling in, they are not our customers. They are our clients' customers. They are the customer of the insurance company. They're mm-hmm. the person who bought that vehicle. But we, they, those clients have contacted us to provide them a service in an extraordinarily stressful event. Yeah. with a high degree of professionalism to let them know they're okay, 
we're going to take care of them, and we're going to make an arrangement based on their situation to be able to work with thousands of service providers who are also depending upon us mm -hmm. for their livelihood. Yeah. So it's kind of an awesome responsibility on the, on the service provider side, mm -hmm. who some of my colleagues, we don't call them service providers, we call them heroes. These are the people out in the snowstorm and, and the, the tow truck event, drivers. Yeah, that they're out mm -hmm. there uh, to be able to provide that service. They're depending on us for a living. And our clients are depending on us to be able to, you know, based on that, their customer on the side of the road is provide mm -hmm. them that service. Well, when we first talked, you mentioned that one of the quickest, easiest ways you have to explain Ajero's business model to everyone is you're like the Uber of roadside service. Yeah. You don't own these assets. You don't own the tow trucks. You certainly don't own the insurers or the car makers. Right. Uh, so it's a, a providing a very mission-critical service. Exactly. Yeah. And again, and, and with a, I hope, again, with a culture that's a lot better than <laughs> an Uber. Um, oh, well, yeah. yes. But I think what's important is that you know, we don't own the assets, but right. what becomes very important, what our technology does, mm -hmm. is how do we re, uh, remove barriers to access the service? So you know, when mm -hmm. people think about it, where the business started, it was always with a telephone call. And still people, when they're in this very stressful event, they're going to want to call someone. They're going to yes. know that someone's on the other end of the phone knowing I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. But with the millennial generation coming online. I was going to say, it's got to be generational, too. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. people, people you know, are using their connected vehicle. People yep. are using apps in which our APIs are embedded in our, our, in our clients' apps. People are interacting through text. We just announced, uh, my, my colleague Christina DeRosa just announced uh, our omni-channel set of capabilities. Yes. Recognizing that for uh, while we will always be able to serve calls, mm -hmm. that we have to provide a broader set of access to basically lower the barriers so people can get the service and at the same time be able to select the mm -hmm. right service provider to be able to meet their needs. Well, and I think of a lot of those different choices between uh, how you interact with your service provider or the vendor that you're buying something from, that it, that, that is really what is kind of building out the digital business ecosystem. That's correct. Yeah. The, um, I want to take you back again to disruptive innovation because uh, it's, it's something that a lot of CIOs are very fascinated with. And at a lot of our events, we have discussions about what is the difference between disruptive innovation and everyday innovation and product innovation. And uh, so how do you define it? I know this is something you talk with uh, the MBA students at Rochester University about. Yeah, two nights ago, actually, I was invited back for the third time to mm -hmm. lecture to the second-year MBA students on new product strategy. It's something I really enjoy. Yeah. And we, we talk about a set of experiences in the context of disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, I, I like to look at it from two angles. One is looking at the balance of supply and demand, and how does one do uh, basically matchmaking? So you look at Airbnb, you look at Uber, right? You look right. at you look at us. Is there's a whole set of of, of innovations that can occur when you can basically saying is there latent access to supply that you can connect to demand in unique ways, mm -hmm. right, to be able to provide better service. So that's one one, one view. One of the examples I, I highlighted in the class was about tile. Tile, mm -hmm. um, which would come out as a little Bluetooth transceiver that basically you connect to your keys, um, was to basically find your lost keys, your lost wallet in their house. But what they based, built out an amazing scale. And basically now their user base is now part of their latent supply. So not only is it you yourself looking for mm -hmm. your keys, but the other millions of users, you can mark something as lost, that yes. now the entire world can basically be out there finding your lost items. Yeah. So when you begin to think about um, your own ecosystems, is to say, is to sort of reinterpret what that supply and demand equation is, that's great. Mm -hmm. The second is how do you engage your community as part of your overall offering? Mm -hmm. So in this case, again- Which uh, is what Tile did. Tiles mm -hmm. has done a great job at that. What, you know, but what's our community? We have a community of clients, mm -hmm. we have end users, we have service providers. How do we also engage all of them to actually be able to solve the mission of how can we find you? How do we get you to the right service? Mm -hmm. How can we provide you know, uh, uh, a service that's keeping you safe? These are all the things you can sort of look at all these different archetypes and different industries yeah. and then to be able to apply them. What are some of the things when you think about that? How do we connect the community? What are we doing for the community? What are some of the things you've done in the uh, since you got there in the last year? What is different about Ajero's connections with the community? Yeah, so I'm going to actually give some credit to some folks who did before I came here. Okay, I, I think it's mm -hmm. very important. Um,
one of the th one of the great innovations uh, that came out with members of, of my team and our product organization uh, was a product called MileUp, yes. which at one point uh, was at number eight in the lifestyle category on, mm -hmm. uh, on, on mm -hmm. iTunes. And the value proposition was is that we believe that we can help drivers become more safe. Safety is core to Ajero's mission, right? Yes. And if you think about the pain points that our, our property casualty insurance companies are going through where um, distracted driving is high, our team innovated a solution that says, can we create an application and an engagement model with the audience mm -hmm. to actually help advise them on the safety of their driving? But also, if something goes wrong, if, we, if there's a crash, yeah. is there a way that we can actually aid in that process? And so in this process, it was not only in developing the app, but the gamification, the user experience, all right, and, and providing a set of incentives to basically enhance the value of the service. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, And this is the Mile Up app. This is the Mile Up mile application. Up app. And so, again, great credit. This is before I arrived. But I think mm -hmm. what's important is that how that application was created mm -hmm. and the ecosystem and the engagement it, it, it created created a whole new set of competencies that you relook re at your core in whole new ways, which has been remarkable. And so I think mm -hmm. now is that you have this adjacency that was explored and then you develop these companies. You kind of now relook at your own business saying, wow, with the things that I learned, I can now solve problems in whole new ways that I had not even anticipated. Hmm. So it's a very exciting time. Can you give me an example of how you solved a problem in a whole new way? So I think one of the things was, was exciting about the MileUp application is about building out competencies within big data, petabytes okay. of data that we're capturing, yep. but also in data science and machine learning. So that became where that was not an established core competency you know, 24 months ago. Mm -hmm. There's not only been uh, work that's been done by a great research community, but by another set of data scientists that can reduce these insights into practice and to mm -hmm. commercialization. So then we begin to have these skills that, like, what other problems can we solve? And so mm -hmm. you you'll, may have noticed there was a recent announcement about how we were leveraging data science and machine learning with regards to proactive notification yes. of a dispatch. Um, there are a number of reasons uh, for both data that we've collected, and we've, you know, we have, again, petabytes of data that we've collected, terabytes mm -hmm. of data we've collected on past roadside assistance events over the, over the years. But there's other data sources that could apply that once a dispatch has been done and something's having in real time, mm -hmm. that we can begin to predict something may go wrong. Uh -huh. Even though at the time we made the dispatch, all the indicators were, all the initial conditions was this is going to go right that something might go wrong. Mm -hmm. So we applied those same competencies that we learned in MileUp into the situation. And that was part of the press release is to say, we are, we are not just, we, you know, you're on the side of the road, we figure out who you are and where you are, and we'll dispatch the service provider, and then our chain of custody ends. Mm. It's now looking at while in process are the things that we can do to assure, provide better assurance and if something's gonna go off the rails because of traffic mm -hmm. or other situations, that we can engage the community to basically say, how can we uh, notify, reset expectations, yeah. and drive towards service? Well, and I can see customers in various industries expecting more and more from predictive analytics. Yes. I had an experience just last weekend where I was heading out to a destination and Google Maps informed me that there was a 39-minute delay and did I want a different route? Right. And I, I don't question I don't question Google Maps. I just kind of went with it. <laughs> so, well, and it was an interesting point you make, too, about um, the, the way automotive services companies and automakers themselves are starting to think of themselves more as software companies. That's correct. Doesn't that, that also, that gets you into a whole different, broader competitive space. Yeah, it's so uh, well, talk a little bit about your competitors and kind of what's happening in the automotive road uh, in the automotive assistance industry itself. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think one of the, so in every in every environment there's competition. Of but course. I think I think mm -hmm. uh, what I'd like to do is actually talk about from the perspective of strength, right? Mm -hmm. As I talk about automotive companies are becoming much more digital. They're becoming like software companies. Yep. And, you know, through our scale, right? And no one can touch our scale. We're generating a lot of data. And that data would normally be just embodied within a bill. Here are the services that we provided, right? Or some mm -hmm. sort of report. But now our stakeholders are becoming very um, dependent on the data that we're generating to generate their own insights. 
there's certain data that we can collect that basically auto manufacturers can can use to say was there an issue with a particular production line mm -hmm. on a particular day right right failure modes effect analysis right um, is there is there potential for, for recall because basically we're like an early warning system for them right. but we also when we look at the data that we're providing it's also intrinsic to the brand experience that their customers are are experiencing mm -hmm. so we can provide a lot more information to them with regards to not only about the vehicle but about the customer's overall experience. And I think uh, from when you think about digital and think about digital businesses and also thinking about how our clients are also digitally transforming, that yes. sense of data intensity mm -hmm. and real time become a very important part of the right. overall experience. Well, and that's becoming, it's, it's not commonplace by any means, but I certainly run into CIOs who end up uh, essentially in charge of a revenue-generating digital product. And uh, they always have a database to them where there is uh, a certain amount of data that they have figured out different ways to slice and dice it and turn it into products that their customers really can use and respond to that way. But I think, again, when you think digital, and this is a classic in an, in an API business, mm -hmm. is that when you expose API or you expose data, sometimes you cannot predict how your customers are going to use it. And it also mm -hmm. sends you, there's a, a certain discipline that's required as you begin to do the change management of those services that not only you're looking at managing your own internal systems, but there's a ripple effect to your client systems. And so this is, so in an API business, when you put out APIs, you have no idea how they're gonna be consumed or for mm -hmm. what applications. Mm -hmm. And as we make avail data available to our clients, we also can't anticipate all the ways they're going to use that data for their own insights. Mm -hmm. But it says, as part of this digital ecosystem, the management of those data yeah. assets become very, very important. Has anything uh, really surprised the company over the last year or so? with the way customers use the data. Has someone come and said, you know what, we're doing this and this with your data now, and everybody sat back and said, wow, we hadn't thought of that. I would say uh, uh, a week or a month does not go by. Really? Where we get those insights. Because okay. again, our clients are going through digital uh, transformation. Transitions of their own. And the mm -hmm. fuel of a digital transformation is data. And yep. so as we, as we get more requirements for the type of visibility uh, that our clients want for data, or as we begin to find out how they're consuming our own data in novel ways, it's, uh, it's rather remarkable. So again, we are part of their ecosystem. Mm -hmm. How much by, say, 2020 or 2025 do you think the, the whole field of automotive telematics will grow? Will it? Uh, what are some of your industry project projections when you look forward? How how will uh, how will things maybe merge? What kind of capabilities might show up? That this is asking you to look into the future, obviously. Yeah. So we have a uh, mm -hmm. I have a, a colleague Jeff Bletcher who's remarkable mm -hmm. in this space. He yeah. is so tied into the to the ecosystem. So mm -hmm. uh, Jeff would be clearly the the best uh, person to talk about this. But channeling my best Jeff Bletcher. Okay. I think what's uh, I think what's important uh, for us and especially as it relates to Agero, right? Mm -hmm. People always ask me the question, "What do you think is going to happen with driverless cars?" What yes. do you think is going to happen with yes, driverless cars? Yes, I asked cars? you that, and right. I was surprised at your answer. Yeah, I think this is so people will think, mm -hmm. well, it's great. And, and what I ask to the audience right now is if you have a window, look outside your window. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in a garage, you're going to see a sea of cars. Mm -hmm. They're just sitting. Now, it's interesting. Some people are using that as a monetization opportunity. Um, I have friends that have Teslas. Mm -hmm. And I have other friends that would like to buy Teslas, but, you know, their spouses will say, no, <laughs> we can't afford it. Yeah. And someone will say, you know what? And I've seen this where I'm going to buy a Tesla. I'm going to drive it to work. And when I park it, I'm going to allow other people to use it while it's mm -hmm. parked. Mm -hmm. And then when they're done, just drop it off. So when it's time for me to go home, I have it. And it's covering their payments. So the whole concept of ownership is changing, right? So part yes. of it is you're going to see people who will be buying cars and then basically acting like, capital investors and let other people use it part-time. Mm -hmm. Others will be buying cars and they will never use them, right? They'll basically own their own little fleet. Right. Some auto manufacturers will become fleet providers. But the world of driverless for us, we're actually excited about driverless cars. Ah. And as Jeff mm -hmm. would explain, right, when you see cars that just sit, they're just sitting. When cars in a driverless world, cars are in constant motion. They are, yeah. Our business is tied to vehicle miles traveled. Because the more miles traveled, the more, more likelihood a of a breakdown. Uh -huh. All right. And so, in, and you still have state governments and they're not 
maintaining mm-hmm. the roads or, 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 or other, other challenges. <laughs> You're in favor of that, too. Right. <laughs> but, but what it does say, right, mm-hmm. is that um, in a driverless car, right, where it's you're you're a user it then says automation right mm-hmm. um my ceo dave Farrick, he's he, he he's constantly focused the, the, the business on automation yes and not automation internally but recognizing as we interface the vehicles the vehicle itself may be calling for roadside assistance right 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 and that yeah. you know or the passenger is part of a program they have while in it right so we mm-hmm. have to be thinking about new levels of connectivity mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to provide those services. Well, we had a uh, presentation last year at one of our at our Dallas event. It was almost a year ago now, and the CIO of Toyota was talking about how um, package delivery can also get involved, and people can essentially have Amazon or UPS bring a package to their car, and they're looking into technologies that you can, uh, someone who's authorized can open the trunk and leave your delivery there, and you pick it up on your way out. I mean, this is actually one of the things I talked about in my class Mm -hmm. at the University of Rochester two nights ago. When we think about disruption, there's other things is is reconceptualizing the value chain, Mm -hmm. and look at how Amazon is right now disrupting FedEx and UPS. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, uh, so you're going to see all these new entrants be able to come in. Uber is in with Uber Eats. It's now in the food delivery business. Yes. So it's very interesting that the, the, the combinations uh, that may exist. And you could see in certain mm-hmm. situations uh, where someone is on roadside assistance and they might be stuck. And you know what? Not to, to need to deliver uh, a tow, but maybe water mm-hmm. or maybe food, right? To be able to provide them um, yeah. know, that service. Well, so you can see these different combinations taking place. Well, there place. was a mention in one of your press releases about an Ajero customer who was helped during Hurricane Harvey. Yes. And felt very much like it was a life saving situation. That's what I mean. Um, I love my job, I love the people I work with. Mm-hmm. It's when I um, went to our call center in Tucson and I hijacked into the calls. I fell in love um, because you hear these people who are in these situations that are, you know, in some cases desperate. Yeah. And the care and the professionalism. And then when you see this on on, on social media, mm-hmm. or you see this, you know, when the person's on on the side road saying thank you so much, you know, yeah. our work matters. Yeah. And that's really amazing. So when you get those things, it's really remarkable. Well, so what we can do about the experience to even yeah. make it better is where. We'll continue to get better. Well, in making work matter that way, actually, um, to pivot over to talent acquisition and talent yeah. management, that attracts candidates to the company, and you are definitely in a hiring mode these days. Oh, yeah, we are hiring. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit more. You're hiring data scientists, but you have two different levels of data scientists. Yeah, we, we, we have, yeah. Da- yeah, we, as I said earlier, there's certain, some of our data scientists are really in the pure research, really breaking down new ground, mm-hmm. and with others who are focusing in on reduction of practice and commercialization. But because of the things that we learned and we pioneered uh, with MileUp, and as we, we talked about with this proactive notification, mm-hmm. we see that there's a whole bunch of business problems that we can go solve. So yeah, we are aggressively hiring full stack engineers, data scientists, people with expertise in machine learning. Um, and people who uh, uh, who are curious. I think that's a, also a very important piece. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an environment and a creating environment around a culture of ownership. And when people are coming all right, to work for a company, they want to know, A, does my work matter? I will tell you to Jero, everyone works matters because mm-hmm. we're, we're in the life-saving business. You know, okay. we're, we're here to help customers. Do I get to work on great technology? We have amazing technology. Do I get to work with great people? We have amazing people, right? And all those things, you know, to millennials, to new employees, matter. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and so, for me, that's an exciting time. Excellent. Yeah. Well, the uh, I'm thinking of something you said earlier about the uh, when we we talked earlier the importance of knowing that anybody can innovate. Because I yes. think I asked you whether you had a digital innovation group like carved out of the IT group, and you don't. It's it's an anybody can innovate sort of thing. How does that? And I'm always glad to hear that because that probably means you're not doing anything like bimodal IT. Okay, that's a hot button issue. Um, bimodal? bimodal? Yeah. I don't yeah. like that term. It comes, I don't either. Yeah. I have a lot of friends at Gartner. Um, they, some mm-hmm. may be listening, so I apologize in advance, but that is not a, that is not a term <laughs> they that I like. They can take it, don't okay. worry. That's yeah. okay. Bimodal mm-hmm. IT is actually, I think, a, a, a very dangerous concept, mm-hmm. all right? Because bimodal IT that basically says you have to manage two groups with two different cultures. One culture is, mm-hmm. hey, 
you're sequential, meaning waterfall. You have to be reliable. You have to be safe. Your risk tolerance is low. The other team, oh, you're fast. You're agile. Right. Um, you're the you're, cool you're, kids. You're, you're the cool kids, yeah. right? And, and those two worlds have to blend. Those worlds both come under me, mm-hmm. right? And so... And we you have could people set it up that way. It is. You could right? have a legacy group, and right. then all the and other and, cool and stuff. we and we do have right. We have. Mm-hmm. Think about what I just talked about. We're in the life saving business, so the the premium on safety and reliability mm-hmm. and uptime and availability and resiliency is quite high. And we have other teams that are innovating, like with Mila. Mm-hmm. Remarkable what they've accomplished. Right, it's great. But does that say that the innovation is strictly within one realm? No. One hope not. No, no, yeah, not. one hopes not. Um, uh, last week, we had uh, an executive leadership team meeting, and two of my, uh, t- two people my team uh, gave a presentation of an innovation they drove in just a few weeks for a client. And it was awesome, right? That mm-hmm. they, they uh, again, not only experience they had within the call center, but looking at working with the client services team, had created an amazing set of tools deep innovation, where they were focusing on 7 by 24 development, a lot of it on their own time, mm-hmm. to be able to say, this is some additional decision support tools I can give to our agents and some experiences that we can create for our clients. And and these were people who would be in the core, yeah. who would, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the Gartner parlance would be um, in, in sort of the safe, reliable, office. right, mm-hmm. deep back office. Yeah. And not only was I proud, I was proud of them for what they accomplished, but I was proud of them about the sense of ownership that they demonstrated. And I think this is what's important. Yeah. And the danger mm-hmm. by modal IT is, is you have like one team on offense and one team on defense. Mm. All right. And I'm a football fan and prevent defense means prevent winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's important is that innovation is the realm of everyone. There's certain innovations where you're focusing in on creating scale, mm-hmm. applied scale in an enterprise where you're taking a big bet and the entire enterprise needs to fall behind it. But every day people are faced with problems that they should be saying, how can I make this better? How can I, you know, yes, I have, I have product features I need to implement. I have client features I need to implement. But how can I make this resilient? How can I make it cheaper? How can I make it better? How can I solve a customer problem? How can I make my agents more effective? Mm-hmm. And that everyone that is facing a problem today should be given the space to be able to innovate, right, mm-hmm. in the context of what they do. But I think more importantly, what CIOs struggle, right, that whole safety and reliability, yeah. is that they have to rethink their development processes and their infrastructure. And it really comes down to risk. CIOs, certain CIOs, are terrified of risk. And the reason about bimodal IT is like, here's the team that can take risk, and here's the team we can't so deal you, with risk. you divide by low risk and high risk. Right. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about our, our customers, mm-hmm. yes, I need you to be reliable. I need you to be available. But I also need you to go faster because I'm going faster. Yes. So it's an and. It's not an or. So what does that say to a technology leader? This is when you begin to think about, I have to change my development process. I need mm-hmm. to be in, in much more of a DevOps environment than a sequential environment. I need to be thinking about blue-green deployment, right, where mm-hmm. I basically have an environment that basically if something goes down, that I can immediately fail back within yeah. minutes, right? And, and doing that blue-green deployment basically reduces the risk of something going wrong. And I need to have extensive application monitoring. So if something does go wrong, mm-hmm. I find it quickly because our customers are depending on us. If you have the right development process, if you have your blue-green deployment, if you have the right application monitoring, your risk tolerance then goes up because if you make a mistake, you can recover fast. Yes, you have a fallback. You have a yeah. fallback. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, and if you think about it, the innovation team as they develop a product, does that then go to the team that says, oh, you need to stop doing what you are doing? Right. You want to have a culture of innovation. You want to have mm-hmm. a culture of managing risk, recognizing that the risk that we are managing on behalf of our clients is high. So mm-hmm. you have to have a much higher premium on your infrastructure to be able yeah. to adapt for them. But what I'm extremely proud of our people is in, across the board is that spirit of ownership, that spirit of innovation, and recognizing that they have the, the opportunity to really make an impact on our operation, mm-hmm. and our clients, and their customers, and our service providers. Yeah. 
We'll see. And, and as I was listening to you describe that, I was thinking that I hear a lot of CIO. I think you had your CIO hat on there for yeah. a minute. Yes, you know, it absolutely. It sounded very much like the... But the CIO hat, yeah. done right, enables the CDO hat to work. Yes. And it also yeah. says it becomes very important where you have to invest in the people and the process and the training and the infrastructure mm -hmm. to basically allow the innovation to take place. If you yeah. don't have that, then you're creating risks for your customers, your clients that are untenable. Yep. And so those become very important. Well, and I'm pleased to say we have a question from our viewing audience. Good. Time and, for and it's uh, it, it's it's very well, it, it segues into a question I was getting ready to ask myself, and it's about the organizational structure. I am always fascinated in this, how CIOs and CDOs parcel up who's doing what in the IT organization because everything is changing so fast these days. And the question is, how has your organization changed since you arrived, and how would you describe the organizational structure today? So the organization, I think what's important is that organizations are in constant change. Mm -hmm. I think what's okay. very important is that the organization you have today may be different in three months and six months based on how you evolve and how your clients evolve. So we, um, if we think about uh, the organization uh, uh, today, we have a set of products and services that we're maintaining for our clients, and we have teams associated with, uh, with those existing products and services where we continue to get uh, feature requests from product and also requests directly from our clients to be mm -hmm. able to st support that. Um, we also have uh, teams who are focusing in on some of our new breakout uh, capabilities mm -hmm. and technologies. I would say that would sort of, you know, that follows that old bimodal definition. But what's important is that innovation is happening in both spaces. And okay. I think that's the, that was the point you saw my very, uh, re, you know, reaction to that, uh, to that context. Yes. That becomes important. But then those innovations then become to go into production, mm -hmm. right? And then the other thing which is important is IT by itself is irrelevant. And I always talk about this with my team. I can talk about the CIO strategy or technology strategy. Mm -hmm. It's irrelevant because it's, it's how do you partner with the product organization? How do you partner with your client services organization? How do you partner with our call center operations team? How do you partner with the network operation? So it's the collaborative functions so, that IT is in the center so, of. So to me, it's, well, and, it's, and, and I've got to be very careful about the, at, the, at the center of. You know, mm -hmm. We are part, we are an equal partner in, in, in the ecosystem. And for mm -hmm. me, what becomes important about less about how IT is organized, and much more important is how are we reducing barriers to collaboration. DevOps is a good, right, mm -hmm. is a good example where traditionally in the, I'll go back to our bimodal IT, you would have a classic dev, QA, mm -hmm. ops. A you know, sequence kind of Sequence, mm -hmm. handoffs, functional organization. DevOps is very important for us in both organizations, right, and yep. bringing, uh, uh, completely changing the process of, of of how we develop software. But the value of how we do that is only in the context of who are our users, our you know, who are our stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Again, it's our clients, it's our clients' customers, it's our call center agents, it's our service providers, mm -hmm. it's other third-party providers, it's our partners. And so how, how we evolve as an organization and how we partner internally changes the clock speed of what we do. And mm. that's, I think, as a CDO, right, and this is where you are partnering with product, you are partnering, is that as our clients are changing their clock speed, we have to change our clock speed. And we have to change our clock speed by reducing all the barriers to internal collaboration. So I would, mm. I would say to the, to the questioner, it was a great question. Yeah. And I think what's important is that collaboration. And one of the things that uh, um, my CEO, Dave Ferrick, has been basically really rolling out, and this is, has to come from the top, mm -hmm. is how you transform the culture. Right, mm -hmm. and it's really about from the top down. This culture of collaboration becomes very, very important. In a practical sense, how do you how do you go about as the CDO changing behaviors? Because a lot of times, the people that have gone into IT deliberately chose technology careers rather than marketing and sales and more kind of people and customer facing. So, what are some of the ways you, as their leader, um, encourage them to get? to become more collaborative? How do they get trained to do so? What What is your approach when you're trying to kind of move people over to this newer world? So I think um, the first, there's, there's step one is part of an evolution is this sense of ownership, right? Mm -hmm. That am I, am I told what to do or am I part of the solution, right? I okay. think it's very important, right? Mm -hmm. It could be like, okay, I'm just sort of on the back end and I'll just execute what I'm told to do. 
the order, number, the order taker, the order taker approach. Right? Yeah, nobody uh, likes that no, in IT. Right? <laughs> but to make that work, right, that sense of empowerment, they need information, right? Mm -hmm. I like that in the context of you want people to solve problems, but you have to democratize information. Mm -hmm. A key to a cultural transformation and collaboration is to understand the context for why my job is important, what value am I contributing. And so part of this is not only, you know, in town hall meetings uh, that I host, um, but I mentioned uh, Jeff Bletcher um, mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. around changes. And he came and talked about here's what's going on in the automotive and insurance industry, right, to all first-line managers and up uh, to basically say this is what's happening. I want you to understand that context. We had a key leader uh, in our product organization that uh, was basically looking at some key initiatives. The detail started on slide 31. And when he and I met, he was like, should I start here? All the first 30 slides was all the business rationale for why. And typically, in a mm. technology context, it would be, let's start with slide 31. Yeah. This is what I need you let's to do. Let's go right to architecture. Let's go right, <laughs> let's, let's go right to the problem. Here's what I need you to do. Yeah. No, we actually spent most of the, of the meeting going over the first 30 slides. Mm -hmm. Here's the business context. This is what, and it was the context is what? As seen by our stakeholders. And I really wanted them to understand what it was, what was happening in the marketplace and it tied directly to what Jeff was talking about in the industry, okay. mm -hmm. to the marketplace. And so as people become much more attuned to the rhythms of the business and the rhythms of our stakeholders, they can make much more higher fidelity decisions in a faster way. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I'm gonna ask someone from our client services team to act, come in and talk more about what's going on with our clients. So it's really about you want to create a highly aligned, loosely coupled uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, environment. The, it becomes incumbent upon management to demonstrate a set of behaviors about how we work together. Right. And more importantly, that we over communicate what's happening with our clients, what's happening with our tow truck drivers, what's happening with our customers, mm -hmm. what's happening in our marketplace, what's happening with competition. Because at the speed we need to operate, it, we need to basically have everyone's eye on the ball. Mm -hmm. right, to be able to change what we do and to enhance what we do. So it's really exciting. Well, and the size of the IT organization that you're working with, you're somewhere north of 170 yes. full-time staffers right. and then so some contractors, additional contractors as well. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a good-sized operation for a mid-sized company. Yeah. yeah. The, um, you mentioned before the, the importance of attracting um, new talent to the company and working on the, the coolest technology. Is there there's a, a a new set of competencies that you look for in the core business, um, like the prediction of you mentioned things going off the rail and right. that sort of things. How do you skill up for those kind of uh, those sorts of needs that the company has? Yeah, so this, there's two things. Um, we have a, a, a remarkable HR leader who's actually built up a pretty remarkable team. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really one view is that you have to have a constant pipeline of, of talent, right? And how you reach talent. I'm hoping this becomes one of those opportunities, having this discussion where, mm -hmm. where people learn more about Ajero. Um, so I think that's one. Number two is how um, our leaders engage, right? I'm excited um, uh, that we have, uh, last year we had uh, people speak at reInvent. We have two more people speaking mm -hmm. at reInvent this year. Uh, someone came to me about a new partnership we formed. They said, Bernie, I can't wait for you to get on stage. I said, I'm not going on stage. She's going on stage. And really what you want is people going out and telling our story and what we do. And that will attract talent as well, saying, because for millennials and for new talent, it's not only the great, you know, that we're doing important work for human beings who are in distress, but I get to work on great technology. I get to work with that person. Mm -hmm. That's what becomes very important uh, as far as developing a talent. The other thing, too, is that the pace of innovation, especially in our ecosystem, is exploded. And, and there is this incumbent responsibility that I think people realize. And part of what we do in partnering with, with HR and partnering with how we allocate capital, as well as people investing their own time, that they have to constantly reinvest. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I, had a, I had a meeting uh, with, uh, with one of our providers, and they had more than 1,000 innovations on their platform in just the last year alone. So if you, you know, there's a, it, it becomes incumbent responsibility for people to self-reinvest. I remember I got, my, I got my first master's degree in 1993. And then 11 years later, I was on a trip to India and saw these companies that were like education factories. And I went to a premier school mm -hmm. and I realized it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. And I went and got master's number two. And constantly, you mm -hmm. constantly have to reinvest. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a master's program, but the upskilling, right, where people are, are leveraging 
a lot of um, mm -hmm. available capabilities, and part of our job is to basically provide those tools uh, to our associates so that they can continue to self-invest and, and provide yeah. incentives to do that, but also that the people themselves have to do the same thing. Well, and I just recently uh, moderated a panel of CIOs, and everybody was pretty much in accord about the need to be a lifelong learner. Yes. To, and a lot of CIOs have gone back and gotten MBAs. And you're right, probably an MBA they got 10 or 12 years ago would be a lot less relevant exactly. uh, than an MBA in something today. Now, how do you yourself, um, uh, how do you end up, doing things like at the University of Rochester? And uh, how do you stay tapped into these communities where you're going to get more innovative ideas? Yeah, I think it's actually really important um, uh, not only for allowing people to promote what they've done and speaking engagements to, you know, to uh, create affinity for what we do, um, but it's so critical to network. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's at every level in the organization. And for all the listeners out there, there are meetups right, uh, mm -hmm. that exist in, in certain areas. There's micro, you know, Massachusetts has a microservices meetup group, uh, uh, as an example. There are so many meetups where you have people that you connect together, and you basically are not only uh, creating connections, but you're seeing people who are solving similar problems. Yeah. And that's a network that you begin to tap into. And so there's a whole set of networks that I participate in. Um, where it, based on certain problems that are faced at certain points in your careers, you can tap into that network and they tap into you. Mm -hmm. I think this is what's great about your organization is that you help facilitate those networks um, to be able to make that happen. I also think some of the best vendors out there mm -hmm. um, uh, do an amazing job um, of basically helping to connect their clients together, right? Uh, whether it be on customer advisory boards or other forms or just saying, yes. hey, I have a client that's doing the same thing. You guys should meet. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I, I find, I'll call that as a classic stage four relationship. You know, I'm indebted to those kind of, uh, those yeah. relationships. Well, I know I, I talk about that. I, I even nag the audience a little at our CIO events where I remind everyone that, you know, we're delighted that they're there and we've put together wonderful things to talk about on stage, but the real reason for them to get together is to talk to each other. Right. And I uh, know a professor at UCLA, uh, an engineering professor actually, who's written a number of books about various aspects of developing organizations. And one of the things he said that I've always remembered is that creativity comes from conversation. Yes. And the idea that neurons start firing in your brain and it's just, so I'm always encouraging people, you know, don't stay Stay off your phones on the breaks, you know, yep. and, and talk to Stay each off, yeah, other. Exactly. Stay off your phones. Stay off your phones. <laughs> we did that on purpose. Exactly. Yeah. That was perfect. <laughs> I know. I know. Couldn't have timed that yeah, any better. Exactly. Um, let me, one of the things we talked about a lot when we were uh, discussing doing this conversation today were some of the aspects around developing a digital business model and expanding yes. the ecosystem and all that. And so you have to do that by driving a lot of collaboration between tech and the business units. And um, I'm also fond of talking about technology and the rest of the business because it, it is not a separate unit by any means. But it used to be that the technology people always had to go more than halfway over the bridge to the business side to tell them about what they were doing, to find out what requirements they needed and all. How do you see the collaboration changing? Is there more of the business people coming to the halfway mark on that bridge between the technology folks and the, and the business units? I think it's interesting. I'm going to come back to your first question about, you know, what's the CDO and what's the CIO. Ah, okay. It, the reason I bring this up <laughs> is uh, it's really to the question that in some ways the CDO is a transitional role because yeah. you everything... You did say you didn't think it was going to be around in 10 years. In 10 years. Yeah. Because, and, and because business and technology are intermingled. Right. There's no Everything's longer, digital. We're not going to be referring to tech as a separate business as unit. As a separate business yeah. unit. And, and when I talk about this Good. concept of the collaboration mm -hmm. of different parts of our business, is that everyone needs to become tech aware. Yeah. One is about how you uh, uh, create a set of capabilities. And I, again, I look at our product organization as a good example, where as they begin to understand the set of capabilities that our technology team is communicating what's out there, mm -hmm. right? and as they sit at the table with our own partner ecosystem, it gives them the permission and space to dream, wow, we could do this and we mm -hmm. could do this. I also think what's important, too, is that it's not just our own technology team working with our business partners, but we're bringing additional partners. We, we, we're developing an ecosystem of, of additional uh, technology companies 
that basically where we, as part of our relationships, mm -hmm. are saying, what can we do to combine our capabilities to be able to support our business and more importantly, support our clients. Hmm. So I think it's what you'll see within within our business is it's not just my own technology team sitting with other parts of the business, but we have a, have other people at the table about how we can combine our assets to do that. And is this with um, contractors and outside uh, vendors that you work with now, or are these brand new? So partners you know, contractors and those are, you know, those are like individual contributors. Mm -hmm. No, these are our firms. Oh, okay. These are these are companies that they're sharing their roadmaps with us. Huh. as we share our roadmaps with them mm -hmm. with regards to how we can provide the best possible service to our clients. And is this relatively new for Ajero or something? I think it that, is. Oh, I think okay. it is. I can't speak mm -hmm. to the past, mm -hmm. but I think it becomes a very important part of the strategy because it says for a firm, and I think part of what it gets back to your org design question, you have to begin to organize saying, what makes us special? Mm -hmm. What is so unique about us that we want to build a moat around that? Why are we so special? And, and yeah. also from, from mm -hmm. a capital allocation perspective, saying this is, this is what makes us unique. And is, are there a set of partners that have a, either better scale, talent, capabilities, reach, um, that says, wow, if we brought like a chocolate and peanut butter moment, right? Bring, mm -hmm. us, bring, <laughs> bring the two of us together that a one plus one equals three. And I think that's a very important part of our evolution. And again, yeah. on behalf of our clients. Okay. Yes, I know the uh, clients and customer certainly comes up a lot in conversation with you, and that's yes. very much built into the way you manage and view the entire CDO role. Correct. Um, do you think, you say that the, the title may not be around 10 years from now. What do you think about some of the other titles that are out there? We see uh, Chief Digital Officer, of course, Chief Data Officer, Chief Information Officer has been around since the 80s, but then there's there's sometimes Chief Innovation Officer comes up. I've heard uh, Chief Integration Officer. What do you think of all this this proliferation of chiefs? Chief, uh, chief uh, cook and bottle washer. Yes, right? That's <laughs> chief everything chief, officer. Chief everything. Yeah. Um, I've heard CEOs say that that's how they feel their job is like chief everything officer. Well, sometimes the so even like the concept of a chief data officer. Yeah. Right is a recognition that certain companies are saying where data may have been the exhaust. Mm. of maybe a business process, mm -hmm. that they're now realizing that the data is an asset. A huge asset. And yeah. so then a chief data mm -hmm. officer, therefore, is really saying, wow, it's not only important internally to drive our own digital transformation, but our clients are depending on it. Mm -hmm. So when you have an executive responsible as the chief data officer, it's almost in, in looking at the data governance, mm -hmm. the master data management, and understanding um, who could be potentially using data, how could it be monetized? How does it create value? Yes. Will there will that chief data officer still be in that job five years after that? Maybe mm -hmm. not. Maybe what they've mm -hmm. done is spun up the processes, the agile data governance, the infrastructure, the people I mean data is a good example, people, process, and technology, right? Yeah. And an entire governance framework. And once that gets part of the rhythm of the business, then just like the chief digital officer, it's like, no, that's how you do business when yeah. you're, you're in the data business. But sometimes you need that executive to drive that transformation mm -hmm. and create that focus. Well, in your role as the CDO, have you done anything that changes the governance? I just a lot of times we try to do um, sessions on governance at our conferences, and it's one of those incredibly important aspects of running a business and running a great technology organization that people find kind of boring to talk about. Whereas a lot of times CIOs will tell me that the thing that made a particular strategy work was that they they elevated governance to like a board level or it became a committee of the board and that the governance is one of those almost unspoken important things that um, Again, people, they, they roll their eyes at, at the G word, yeah. but it becomes really vital to actually getting things done. How do you, how do you feel about that? I, I, it's actually, it's, you know, sometimes like with data, it's like, it's very unsexy. Governance, it's sort of like, oh, you know. I feel like data's gotten more sexy. Data's gotten sexy. Not right? so much yet governance, governance. But yeah. actually governance is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said earlier, um, Dave Farrick, our CEO, is looking at uh, governance through a set of guiding principles that, you know, saying, how do I create a, a highly aligned, loosely coupled organization, an empowered organization? You have to set up guardrails, mm -hmm. right? So from a high, so like, what are the set of guiding principles? What are our behaviors? What are those guardrails? That's a form of governance. And then um, uh, uh, our product organization led by Christina DeRosa, we, we said we need to meet every two weeks. 
with regards to how are our teams working together. Mm -hmm. And then there are certain key, key strategic initiatives where we get together around that just initiative where we're together every Monday and all yeah. the stakeholders are together. We have to strive to be better every day. And you saw at the root word is collaboration, what we mm -hmm. talked about before. Mm -hmm. So you, can, you, you, can, you know, to have collaboration, there has to be some governance. Now we evolve, we're constantly evolving in how we do governance, but governance is important. Yeah. It's a very important topic. How do you govern data? How do you govern processes? How do you govern priorities? Uh, priority management, I think, is actually one of the challenges that every CIO faces. Mm -hmm. We face this. Yeah. We have client requests. We have product requests. We have our own tech debt. We have people who are discovering opportunities to kind of look at things that we can do with the platform. And yet, like every company out there, you have a fixed set of resources and budget. Mm -hmm. And so the whole governance about how you then assign priorities to what work and why yeah. becomes very important. And how you do that in a transparent manner also becomes very important. Well, I've We strive to get better every day. Yeah, I've run into a couple of CIOs lately who have ended up spearheading a company-wide governance effort that is mainly all the business units, but the CIO or CDO is in charge of it by recognition of that helicopter role that you have, that you know all the moving parts of the company. Uh, another CIO makes a very strong argument that the next natural step in a lot of CIO careers is to become a chief operating officer because, uh, and, and it's happening in some firms like MasterCard. Mm -hmm. The CIO just moved into a president of technology and operations role. And it, it strikes me that the CDO, you know, especially in a combination role like yours with CIO, is very much headed that way in terms of being the most expert of the senior leadership team in terms of running a governance operation. Yeah, I wouldn't, in, in our environment, we're blessed with very great, capable senior leaders. And it's really about how we set the environment mm -hmm. together. Because one of the things we also want to do is to say in an environment, you want as much of the decision-making going down, right? If you can oh. set context, right? Because mm -hmm. if you think about in a digital organization changing the clock speed, the more stuff that kind of rolls up, people are waiting. If you can set the set of guiding principles and frameworks and processes where the senior leadership is aligned on what becomes important, that helps actually the people make decisions faster. But it's still mm -hmm. a form of governance. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, we're getting close to the close oh, of our this one hour. Fast. I know it's going to. Yeah. Didn't I tell you it would go by quickly? <laughs> um, I wanted to get some final thoughts uh, from you about, well, but, to start with advice to CIOs who would be who are interested in moving into a role that is maybe uh, maybe it doesn't even have the CDO title but it is more CDO like in the focus on you know that outside in perspective and thinking about the customers and the stakeholders um, to move into strategic digital positions where they're really having an effect on the company future. This is every strategic CIO, this is on their wish list. Right. So from someone who is doing that job now, what is your advice? What are your observations about a good way to make those career steps? So I think one of the topics mm -hmm. we brought up before yep. is network. Yes. It's, it's, it's the LinkedIn is a great tool, right, uh, to, to find other CDOs in your area. Mm -hmm. You, all of you have vendors. Um, you should be saying, hey, um, who else is out there kind of doing what I'm doing, not in a, in a competitive space, but kind of solving similar problems? Mm -hmm. Use your vendors, right, to basically help establish connections, right, and, and, and create a sort of a safe space over coffee, just like the conversation we're having here, mm -hmm. to begin to share. Ultimately, though, I think, the, again, the only moral authority that exists is the client. And I think what's so important mm -hmm. is, is, to, is to think about it from, uh, like from an ethnographic perspective, is to go mm -hmm. walk and live through the lens of the client. And then sort of look at your organization as how the client is experiencing your organization. Mm -hmm. And that begins to kind of transform your understanding with regards to what can I be doing better for them. So as you think about your clients, your prospects, those who aren't your clients and yeah. understanding where they currently are, I think it's really like get out, get yeah. out of your chair, get out of your office, get out of the back room um, and kind of uh, work with them. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes very, very important. Well, I had another CIO recently mention to me and he said that he got some great advice, which was once you get the seat at the table, don't sit around too much. Right. You know, don't just hang around at the table, get out there. Right. Um, the, the other thing is the internal mm -hmm. networking piece, right? The relationship, yes. right? Um, Here's a, actually, it's a very important story. Um, the professor um, um, uh, 
of, of this uh, uh, University of Rochester, we talked about a story where um, there was a disruptive innovation that I helped bring to market. Mm -hmm. And it was a very transformative uh, uh, application that spanned marketing, IT, and operations. Mm. It was very mm -hmm. unique. It was ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time, which is a problem. Oh, I know, like, right. what the, like the Newton was right. for Apple. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. it, But it had the, the economics were, were compelling. And so as I would bring these stakeholders together for marketing, IT, and operations, and I would hand my business card to them to talk about this new value proposition, I noticed that they were handing their business cards out to each other. Whoops. They had never even met. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, and it was interesting that <laughs> as a vendor coming in, I was like, wow, I'm in trouble. <laughs> now, this was yeah. actually disruptive <laughs> innovation is all a function of timing. Because these people are going to have to collaborate and they just and they met. May not, and they just met. Yeah. And so oh I was my. like, wow, I think the sales cycle just went longer. But <laughs> I think what's, what's important is that is, is to build those bridges, especially some CIOs are part of very large organizations. Mm -hmm. They need to build the bridges internally. Yeah. Right? Because it's saying, what could we do to partner together to create value? Mm -hmm. yeah. Excellent. And final question I'll ask you uh, about learning on the job. You've yes. been, you're, not, you're not even there quite a year yet. Yes. But is there anything that you wish you knew then that you know, know now about your job at Agero? So I, I would say two things. Sometimes mm -hmm. when you go into uh, a, a new job, I told this actually to the shareholders when I came there, mm -hmm. you have this thing around buyer's remorse, like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> that's the most beautiful thing is like, no, every day I walk yeah. in, I love that I'm at a Jero. So mm -hmm. that's, that's important. Uh, and we know that the work that we're doing is important and that we get to work with amazingly talented and committed people. So mm -hmm. I think I think that is great. Um, I think what's uh, for me is the most important is that what you know today is different tomorrow. Our clients are changing. Nothing mm -hmm. is static. Mm -hmm. our, our service providers are changing. Our clients are changing. Our customers are changing. Uh, a business that may have been looked the same to a number of different clients, as our clients are changing, they're turning into different segments. They're behaving differently. Mm -hmm. So I think what you have to, when you come into a company, is to not look at any context that's static. It's never static. Your organization is never static. It needs to align to those things. So. Mm -hmm. Be, adapt, be adaptive, constantly learn, constantly probe, be curious, and show courage every day. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, if we were doing this at one of my CIO Perspectives events, I'd be asking for a big round of applause for you right now. Yeah. So you, you'll have to settle for a virtual one. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much for joining us thank today. Thank you for the opportunity. It was, it was truly our pleasure. And thank you also to our viewers. We're delighted to have had you here, especially the folks who sent in questions for us. I hope we'll see you again at our next CIO Leadership Live session will be on December 5th, when I'll be talking with CIO Ron Garrier of Farmers Insurance. And in the meantime, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at CIO Online and visit CIO.com for the latest in tech news and analysis and how-to blogs and video for IT professionals. CIO.com is also where you can find today's video um, and also an audio podcast of uh, the conversation that Bernie and I just had that you can listen to later. Thanks again for joining us today. I hope that our paths will cross again live during the year at some of our CIO events or back here again next time. Take care. Thank you, Mary Fred. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Thank Bernie. You.